Some of you might know, because I've shared with some of you, that my wife and I met online. And we met an online dating service that was particularly attractive to people who like to work with words, as she and I both do. And so one of the exercises I remember is that you had to fill in the blanks. Blank is sexy. Blank is sexier. Now, even highly intelligent people, if you put the word sex in there, all creativity, all originality seems to fly right out the window. And so I remember reading, and this is some of the cleanest stuff I can share with you. A thong is sexy. I I didn't write this, please. I don't want this image in your mind. Uh, A thong in me, on me, in South Beach is sexier. Well, okay. Um, The point of this is that when I read a lot of these kinds of responses, I actually wanted to, in my own response, sort of expand that idea of sexy and sexier. I wanted to focus more on attractiveness, what makes another person attractive. And Teresa, after we'd met and after we started discussing our profiles, how we sort of became initially attracted to each other, let me know that I had for her, nailed it in my answer. I wrote that knowing is sexy, learning is sexier. Oh, all right. (laughs) Every once in a while, you know, you get a line, you're like, yeah, okay, that's gold. I'm going to leave that in there. (laughs) But, I mean, that's really what I believe. I, I believe that mastery, excellence, really knowing something well is part of what makes us truly attractive people. But learning is sexier because at some point, no matter how much excellence we have, no matter how much we know, no matter how much we have mastered, life is going to take us beyond and into the point of what we can no longer know. We're going to enter that place we have to go where knowledge is not going to help us. And it is how we respond at those moments, at life at its limits, that really defines the value of who we are. In those moments, we have to become who we are in light of what we don't know yet. That is what Toy Story 3 is all about. All the toys have reached their limit, the limit of their usefulness as they might think. It is because Andy... The boy with all the toys in Toy Story 1 and Toy Story 2, Toy Story 3, he is going away to college. It's the end of his childhood, and these toys are at the end of their innocence. They're at the end of what they have done so well and having to move into another sphere of life. Woody and Buzz and Jesse and Ham and Barbie and Ken. And by the way, I absolutely love this character, Ken, not because he shares my namesake, because at first in the movie he appears to be just a kind of silly stereotype of guys who care too much about clothes, which might be true of this Ken as well, too. But he actually explodes some of those stereotypes. And so actually I think this is quite sly in the movie. All these toys, they hope, Best case scenario, they hope that they might get sent away to a daycare center where they will continue to be played with. Or they hope that they might go up into the attic to be stored and kept as keepsakes for maybe some point in the future. But the worst thing that can happen to them, the worst thing, the thing they most fear that will really symbolize that they are done is that they will end up curbside in the trash. Forgotten. Thrown away kicked literally to the curb. I think in a fitting way, 
Given our age, these toys are facing unemployment. Literally. They are wondering whether they have any value anymore. They are in that great euphemistic British sense of being laid off, wondering if they're just redundant. Because the world that they now inhabit has all kinds of new shiny toys in it iPods, iPhones, of all kinds of stuff, and we see them hanging out of kids' ears, and we see the way that play has changed just since the last Toy Story movie has been made. They start to wonder are we disposable? Are we just junk? Do we have any place in this world anymore? Do we have any reason for being? This loss of innocence, this fall into reality, this start of the growth of maturity is a part of almost every sacred story, sacred literature that has ever been authored. We come from a tradition that does not interpret Adam and Eve, the story of the quote-unquote fall, which if you read the Bible, the word the fall doesn't appear in it. That's something Augustine invented, in my opinion, hundreds of years later, thousands of years later. The story of Adam and Eve is not one of original sin. It is of that mythological moment when we as human beings became aware of ourselves, when we recognized we had the gifts of knowledge, when we became self-conscious and started to enter fully into that moment of our freedom, the pain and the promise of it. Take a look at the Buddha's story. Those of you who have studied the Buddha's story know that he was a privileged, pampered young prince. Everything was given to him. Everything in the world he could have wanted, he had from his parents, he had from his father. Even to the point that his father wanted to hide from him the truth of the fact that we are mortal creatures. And it was only one day when he was around riding in the countryside. In his carriage with the blinds drawn, that carriage stopped. Seeing what the impediment to his progress was, he got out and he saw an old man, stoop-shouldered, sick, close to death, and shocked in his innocence, he said, what are you? And the answer is told many different ways, but the truth of it to the man who is becoming the Buddha is this. I, this old man, am you. We are all mortal. The Buddha's awakening, the process of his awakening, this awakening that is opened to all of us, begins in that moment when his innocence has been removed and he sees the truth of life. Sometimes innocence is just a really polite way of saying ignorance. So many spiritual awakenings begin when we are jostled out of what we call normal life, routine life, life as we think it should be ought to be some awakenings are very very rude some are painful some are absolutely necessary all of them can help us see deeper into this life to perceive reality in a way we had not could not when we were innocent it was july 4th 26 years ago and what i call the summer in my life when i was 14 years old 1984 The summer of the prince and the boss. They were these two albums, Born in the USA and Prince and the Revolution's Purple Rain, released within a week of each other. I liked both, but I could only admit to really liking the Bruce album. 
I remember the day when Rolling Stone came out that summer, and even at camp, even at sleepaway camp where I was, I still religiously waited on the Rolling Stone guide magazine to get there every week so I could chart the progress. And I remember the day when Purple Rain knocked Born in the USA out of the number one slot. And I can remember I was annoyed with this, and I uttered an expletive, and one of my counselors says, you need to look a little bit why you're so upset about why it is that you think Bruce Springsteen should be number one. And just at that point, I understood what he was saying. Why was it that I was so taken with rooting for this guy instead of that guy? I was actually horrified when I took a look at some of my own internal reasons. Was it just that one was white and the other was black? I would have been horrified to think that as the progressive 14-year-old that I thought I was. Maybe as one that, well, one wore leather and purple. The other wore denim and blue jeans. But that's not the right reason. Those are completely illegitimate reasons to root for one over the other. And years later, I can say that as much as Bruce Springsteen has captured my heart as any artist will ever do, that frankly, folks, in my opinion, this is a much better album. (laughs) Purple Rain is a better album than Born in the USA, as much as I love Bruce Springsteen. But I had to start to ask myself that question. Why did I so naturally feel an affinity for one and such illegitimate reasons? This was just part and just the start in that summer of sleepaway camp of my worldview getting stretched and starting to grow beyond some of my innocence that was ignorance. I think it was 26 years ago, actually, to the day today, July 4th, a camp trip to Nantucket Island on that big boat that grows across from Hyannisport to that island in the middle of the Cape Cod Sound. And a woman, young woman, teenager, named Kelly, let me know that she was interested in me. Now, I was shocked by this because the year before at camp, Kelly, and that's not her name. I'm not going to tell you her real name. Kelly had gone out with the camp's biggest badass. I'll tell you his name. His name was Hank. He was the first camper to show up at camp with a pierced ear the year before. He was the first camper to show up at camp with a tattoo. He was the first camper that when he got his driver's license, it wasn't a driver's license. It was to drive his motorcycle. He was the biggest badass at that camp, which really, in the grand scheme of things, isn't much of a badass. But, you know, this is a nice little camp in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Kelly was a year older than me. She had gone out with the coolest kid. She was much more confident than I was. She was much more pretty than I was, too. And on that field trip on that Independence Day, during a rainstorm, under the awning of an A&P on Nantucket Island... We kissed for the first time, and that ushered in the happiest three weeks of my early adolescence. I was just, everything was great. Everything was absolutely perfect. Everything was fantastic. I mean, here she was, so much cooler than me, so much more together than me. I was just going to ride my dumb good good, uh, luck as long as I could until three weeks later. And then she came outside my cabin on a really rainy day knocked on the door asked to see me and I couldn't tell whether it was the rain or whether it was her tears but she said that she could no longer go out with me anymore and she turned and she ran away 
I was so pissed and so crushed. She tried to explain in the weeks coming up, but I didn't want to hear it. So convinced I was in my self-righteous self-injury. And I went through the rest of that camp so mopey. I mean, this was a picture of me. Tennis. Mm. Swimming. Mm. Riflery. Well, all right. I lifted my head for riflery. You know, that's really dangerous to do it. And on the last night of camp, she came up to me. She gave me a really, really big hug. And she looked me in the eye and she said, I'm sorry. And she pushed a letter into my hand such that I could not let it go. She really pushed it into my hand. And she walked away. It was very, very cinematic. If I ever write a screenplay about my life, it's going to be out the summer of 1984. And I don't want to read that letter. And I actually held it until the next morning, until most everyone else had been picked up from camp, and I opened it. And what I saw changed my perspective entirely and ended my innocence in the way it should have been ended. She revealed that, and I'm remembering this with my 40-year-old brain, but I think the, her 15-year-old truth was probably better articulated is that she broke up with me because she didn't like feeling vulnerable. It was scary to care about someone. And she went on to explain why. She said that in a couple days she'd be returning home to a family in which there was a lot of physical abuse. And even though I was pretty dense at 14 years of age, I could read between the lines when she talked about her relationship with her brother and her relationship with her father. And I could see that probably this physical abuse was also sexual abuse. In that moment, holding that letter on that last morning of camp, with tears in my eyes, knowing that if I had only, only tried to see before what was the truth of her life, Perhaps I wouldn't have been so selfish. See, she had lost the innocence of feeling secure in her body and secure in her home and secure in her world and in other relationships. It is the kind of innocence that we hope that no one would ever have to lose, but it is the innocence that we know so many young women and young men lose. I had lost the innocence of privilege, of thinking that at nice camps in New England on Cape Cod, that things were just okay, and that it would be all right for me to be annoyed when someone broke up with me, and that bad things didn't happen to good kids at nice camps in New England. One way or another, necessarily, unnecessarily, justifiably or tragically, life will take our innocence away. It is one of the reasons that I love Pixar films, is that in so many ways they are developmentally appropriate ways for kids and for adults who haven't gotten the message yet. 
to recognize that life is difficult and that innocence eventually we all have to shed. The point then in Pixar films and in any mature spirituality is what do we do after we've lost our innocence? I love the story that I know some of you know as well too because you gave me the article from Oprah Magazine, from O Magazine this last winter. It's the story of Thich Nhat Hanh who, of course, if you've been here before, authors our meditation week after week. And he tells his story of exile of being forced to leave his home, his beloved home of Vietnam because of the ideals that he stood up for. He was asked, how did you handle this? And when you're seen as a spiritual authority or a spiritual leader, people really, really want to know how you handle the tough stuff because it's not what you say. It's how you act in those moments that count. He said that he mourned deeply the loss of his home. He mourned deeply the people he loved and that he would not get to see them again, perhaps ever. He felt what he had to feel, his loss. And then he said he started to fall in love with where he was. He started to fall in love with all of these new people with where he was living in France. After innocence, beyond innocence, all of us have to know that when we leave home, leave home that for many reasons perhaps prove to us not sustainable or not just or simply unwise for us to be there, that we have to go out in search, if we are to heal, of a newer and deeper home. This is my wish for Kelly, who I have not seen and only spoken to once since the summer of 1984. That she would have found a home with others and within herself that was trustworthy. That she could have found a place to be herself and know that she had value. See, this is not like in the movie. One of the most interesting characters in the movie at first is a very cuddly bear called Lots of Huggins. Lots of Huggins speaks and actually ultimately acts like a southern plantation owner. At first, very, very nice, but with a horrendous ulterior agenda. Because many of the toys do end up at that daycare center. And Lots of Huggins, the bear, arranges it so that all the, newcom all the newcomer toys have to be in the nursery. Where basically the only way that they get played with is to be picked up by toddlers who don't know how to play with toys like Buzz Lightyear or Jesse or Woody yet and get bang, bang, bang. Lots of Huggins has arranged it in such a way that he can make others suffer. We understand that Lots of Huggins' backstory is all because he lost his innocence many years ago. He was one of those sad stuffed animals that maybe you've seen that gets left on the side of the road. He gets left behind. And he has never gotten over how bitter he is when his innocence was lost. He has become so bitter that he will make other people suffer. Other toys suffer for what he feels he is owed. I think of this actually this July 4th day, this day when, well, 
there's always been this in America. The sense that if we could only get back to some time, whether it was the founders or whether it was during the greatest generation, some time back then when things were ideal, when the word is nostalgia really means the longing for home, if we can only get back there to that time, then all of our problems would disappear. But of course, that time is an imaginary time. It exists only in TV and fantasy. On this July 4th, I think all of us, left, right, independent, non-political, are asked, what does really mature love of country look like? Not hearkening back for some time of innocence, but accepting the fullness of this moment and knowing it in its absolute wonderful imperfection. That here is where we grow from, not going back. People become embittered by the loss of innocence because the most painful part of it, the most painful part of losing our innocence is that we feel we won't be cared for. That we will have lost the opportunity to love or to be loved. Have you ever known someone who has lost their innocence, perhaps in some really awful ways, when they internalize that sense, that absence of love for ourselves, for what is in here, it makes us feel as if we are disposable people, that we're junk, we're trash. And even as one of the characters, one of those toys that's headed out to the curb says, with tears in her eyes, in Toy Story, I don't want to be junk. I don't want to be thrown out. The absence of love, the loss of innocence, might also lead us in the other way, like lots of Huggins. The absence of love might lead us to treat other people as disposable. That they lack worth, that they are the problem, that they are the one who, if we can get them out of the way, that we can return to our state of innocence and everything will be okay for us. Both the love of law, loss of love on the inside and the loss of love on the outside are both trying to go back. But there isn't any going back. It is why the signature spiritual virtue in any religious life is compassion. We can only be truly compassionate for another person and with ourselves once we've lost our innocence. Because once we've lost our innocence, we know what it's like to suffer. Some of you might have been aware of a little bit of commotion going on over here earlier in the service. A couple of our members were driving to Wellsprings this morning and they saw a woman walking around the side of the highway in her bedclothes, and disheveled, not knowing sort of who she was and not knowing where she was going. They stopped, they picked her up, they brought her here, and some of you got involved, called people who could help, and we were able to deliver her to where she needed to get. If we want to live in innocence, we're going to choose to see what we want to see and choose not to see what we don't want to see. 
when we can live on the other side beyond innocence. We can live that deepest, most noble truth of recognizing that others are here with us as well. And it is our presence with them that makes all of the difference. But there's one other thing, too. It's not just that we can be there for others. It's that we can recreate some of those things that we experienced in our innocence, but better. Because we admit that we could be jaded if we wanted to. (laughs) We could be too knowledgeable if we wanted to. We could be, if we wanted to, making the choice not to see the world fresh any longer. But this is the last and the most wonderful scene in the movie. And I don't think there was a dry eye in the house when we went to see Toy Story 3. There is Andy in that last moment. The boy with all the toys that have been packed up. And he's leaving for college. And he's about to leave the toys with a friend of the family, a little girl about five years old. And he just wants to deposit them and get rid of them. But then one falls out. And he picks up that toy. And he sits down. You know, when you talk to kids, don't talk to them above here. You know this, many of you are parents. You know, you get down on their level. And he takes out the toys. And in that moment, he is returned to all that joy that he knew. Everything that he thought he had lost can be his again. He knows all the same signals on Buzz Lightyear to make him a buzz, 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 and all the lights. He has recaptured what was always his, what isn't lost. But what could be lost if we admit that after we lose our innocence, somehow we have also lost our souls at the same time. They are not the same thing. The childish way is to insist that because we have lost our innocence, all is lost. And adult life just has to be sort of getting from miserable to miserable to functional. But there is another way. The childlike way. To know that even as it's painful, even as the loss of innocence means saying goodbye to some part of who we are that had to go away eventually anyway, that life, that real life, starts only on the other side of the loss of innocence. It takes us beyond who we thought we were transcends our limits and takes us to the edge of what we think we can do and helps us reach beyond. We can get back in touch with that which we are made for originally, for delight and joy and compassion and playfulness and knowing that perhaps we might never get back there because that's gone. We can fully Fully embrace what Buzz Lightyear says to infinity and beyond. We can go forward. We can't go back, but we are invited into a reenchantment in which we love wiser, become more aware, become more humble, and a wisdom in which we choose to see. Everything that this life has for us. 
Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God who calls us into maturity. May we recognize on this birthday of our country that each day has within it the seeds of a new and profound and more enlivening freedom. As this day contains within it all the seeds of our awakening, if we would choose to awaken, this day contains within it all the seeds of love, if we would choose to love. This day contains within it all the seeds of our wisdom, if we would choose, choose to be wise people, opening our hands, opening our minds, opening our hearts and knowing that so much of what we need is right here. Amen.